happy Saturday, everybody. Coming up this week on the show, we have a podcast subject who has some parallels with Phyllis Wheatley. Since we have a previous episode on Wheatley, we thought it would be a good time to share this one out of the archive. This episode originally came out on March 5th, 2018. So enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So I've had the same experience multiple times over the last year or so, which is that I've been walking through a museum or a library and I've seen an exhibit on Phyllis Wheatley and thought, we really should do a podcast episode on her. (laughs) And then that keeps happening for at least a year, while for various reasons, other topics wind up up at the top of the list. So Phyllis Wheatley is somebody whose basic biography I learned about and whose work I read in school. But it was only when I got into the research for today's show that I realized how very, very incomplete a lot of that was and how dramatically people's perceptions and their interpretations of her life and work have shifted since the 18th century. I mean, people have thought wildly different things about Phyllis Wheatley over the years. So today, we are going to talk about not only Phyllis Wheatley, who was one of only three people in North America to publish their work while enslaved, but also how her place in the world of literature, especially Black literature, rose and then fell and then rose again during her life and after her death. Phyllis Wheatley was likely born in what's now Senegal or the Gambia in about 1753. We don't have details about exactly where she was from or which African nation or people she belonged to. Even the connection to the Senegambia region is a little tenuous. The slave ship that took her to Boston, Massachusetts did stop there, but it also made several other stops in Western Africa, so it's really tricky to pin down. The crew moved south along the African coast as they tried to carry out the orders of the ship's owner, Timothy Fitch, which were to, quote, purchase 100 or 110 prime slaves. Phyllis herself did not really fit that description of, quote, prime slaves. She was about seven, judging by the fact that she'd lost her front baby teeth by the time she arrived in Boston. She was also small and she was in poor health. She probably would not have been purchased during the ship's first stops in Africa, but only later on, in a final attempt for the crew to fill that quota they'd been given, the ship finally departed with 95 enslaved Africans aboard. So Phyllis may have been from farther south along the African coast, possibly as far south as Sierra Leone. We also don't know what Phyllis Wheatley's name was before she was taken from Africa, or even what language it was in. The ship she was aboard arrived in Boston, as we mentioned, and that happened on July 11th, 1761, with 75 enslaved Africans still living after the eight-week transatlantic journey. In August, John and Susanna Wheatley purchased her, and they named her after the ship they bought her from, which was called the Charming Phyllis, also known simply as Phyllis. By the time the ship arrived in Boston, Phyllis herself was in poor enough health that she was considered to be refuse which was the term that was used for enslaved people who were too old, sick, or injured to be saleable. Charles J. Stratford, who was descended from one of Susanna Wheatley's relatives, described it this way, quote, In or about the year 1761, a slave ship arrived in Boston Harbor with a cargo of slaves, 
Aunt Wheatley was in want of a domestic. She went on board to purchase, and looking through the ship's company of living freight, her attention was drawn to that of a slender, frail female child, which at once enlisted her sympathies. Owing to the frailty of the child, she procured her for a trifle, as the captain had fears of her dropping off his hands without emolument by death. John Wheatley was a prosperous tailor and merchant, and he and his wife Susanna had twin children, Mary and Nathaniel, who were about 18 at the time. And the family quickly realized that Phyllis was really bright. John and Susanna gave their children, especially Mary, permission to tutor her. By the age of about nine, just two years after she arrived in Boston, Phyllis had learned how to speak, read, and write in English. In addition to doing extensive Bible study, she also started learning Latin and Greek, including translating part of Ovid's Metamorphoses, expanding it into the poem Niobe in Distress for Her Children Slain by Apollo later on. She also studied literature, history, geography, and astronomy. And she also read lots and lots of poetry. Her work is most often compared to English neoclassical poet Alexander Pope, but she read the work of other poets, including some from the colonies. One of these was Mather Biles, whose 1744 Poems on Various Occasions may have inspired the structure and arrangement of Phyllis's own book. She was so voracious in her education that she was allowed to spend more time in study than in domestic labor at the Wheatley home. This was well before the rise of anti-literacy slave codes, which were passed in most of the South in the early 19th century and made it illegal to teach enslaved people to read and write. But even so, in the 18th century, it was not typical at all to educate enslaved people. Even though she had no formal education, Phyllis Wheatley's tutoring and her self-study also went well beyond what would have been expected for 18th century white women. In 1767, two men from Nantucket visited the Wheatley home, and they told a story about how they'd been sailing there from Boston when a storm struck their ship. They had narrowly escaped disaster. Phyllis overheard their conversation, and she wrote a poem about it, which became her first published work on Mr. Hussey and Coffin, and that was printed in the December 21st, 1767 edition of the Newport, Rhode Island Mercury. She was 14 at the time. By 1770, so just a few years later, tensions were rising between Britain and its colonies. Although the Wheatley family were by all accounts loyalists, meaning that they were loyal to Britain, Phyllis's sympathies were with the Patriots' cause. She attended church at the Old South Meeting House, which is a place that comes up over and over again in stories about the Revolutionary War. And in 1770, she wrote two poems about relevant events of the day that made it really clear which side she was on. The first, on the death of Mr. Snyder, murdered by Richardson, she describes the murder of a boy named Christopher Snyder or Cider at the hands of customs officer Ebenezer Richardson. In this poem, she describes Christopher as a martyr. The second is On the Affray in King Street on the evening of the 5th of March, 1770. It's not completely clear whether the second one, which is obviously about the Boston Massacre, has survived. Uh, There is a poem with that name that was published in the Boston Evening Post on March 12, 1770, but it was not signed. And while some critics say it's the same poem, others are not so sure. It was a pretty common way of describing the Boston Massacre, which is why it's believable that two different poets could have written a poem about it with roughly the same title. 
It was also in 1770 that Phyllis Wheatley wrote the poem that would make her famous. This was called An Elegiac Poem on the Death of That Celebrated, Divine, and Eminent Servant of Jesus Christ, the Reverend and Learned George Whitefield. Whitefield was an Anglican deacon who toured the colonies and employed a style of preaching that was incredibly dynamic and charismatic. He was really instrumental in the religious revival that was known as the Great Awakening. I have to say, these are not the snappiest poem titles. (laughs) (laughs) They all tend to run a little long. Uh, Phyllis wrote the elegy shortly after Whitefield died on September 30th, 1770. It was first circulated as a pamphlet in cities like Boston and Philadelphia. In 1771, it was reprinted along with the funeral sermon that Ebenezer Pemberton had delivered on October 11, 1770. This reprinting gave Wheatley an audience on both sides of the Atlantic, especially after she sent a copy to Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon. In addition to his preaching tours in the colonies, Whitefield had been the Countess's personal chaplain. Almost instantly, Phyllis Wheatley became the most famous African in Britain and its colonies, very well known as a poet, and we will talk about what followed in the now famous Phyllis Wheatley's writing career after a quick sponsor break. kept writing new poems in the early 1770s. Although some of them were published in pamphlets and newspapers, she didn't really want to just scatter them all around, publishing them in lots of different places. She wanted to publish them together in a book, and by 1772, she had written enough to do it. But to fund this book's publication, she needed to find subscribers to commit to buying the work in advance. I imagine this as sort of a colonial version of Kickstarter, Either she or Susanna Wheatley, or possibly both of them working together, started placing advertisements for this forthcoming book with Ezekiel Russell as its printer. But sometime that summer, Phyllis turned her attention to publishing in England instead. The reasons for this are not entirely clear. There are a number of accounts that claim that she wasn't able to find enough subscribers in the colonies, but they don't really cite primary sources for that. But there is a 1773 letter from one of her subscribers, John Andrews of Boston, who suggested that it was really for financial reasons. Basically, she was getting better terms from a London press. The not enough subscribers argument usually comes along with the explanation that racism was the root cause of her not finding an audience in the colonies. And this was not racism as in white readers maliciously not wanting to read the work of a black person. It was really racism as in white readers disbelieving that a black person could have even written it. Uh, For the institution of slavery to exist the way that it did in the American colonies, it had to rest on the idea that Africans were less than human and were inherently less intelligent than Europeans. So there were definitely people on both sides of the Atlantic who thought that Wheatley's poems must be some kind of fraud. Wheatley dealt with this by getting some of Boston's most prominent men to sign an attestation that she really was the author of her own poems. This included Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson, Lieutenant Governor Andrew Oliver, the Reverend Mather Biles, and the Reverend Samuel Mather, nephew and son of Cotton Mather, the Reverend Charles Chauncey, and John Hancock. 
A copy of this attestation, dated October 28, 1772, appeared in Lloyd's Evening Post and British Chronicle in September of the following year, and a slightly reworded version of it was part of Wheatley's first book as well. And here's what the book version said. Quote, We whose names are underwritten do assure the world that the poems specified in the following page were, as we verily believe, written by Phyllis, a young Negro girl, who but a few years since brought an uncultivated barbarian from Africa, has ever since been, and now is, under the disadvantage of serving as a slave in a family in this town. She has been examined by some of the best judges and is thought qualified to write them. Although it's become part of the popular lore about Phyllis Wheatley that this took place, there's no actual evidence that the undersigned men actually met in a group and interrogated her about her work. Yeah, there's even a children's book that hinges on this supposed meeting. It's actually a much more likely scenario that there was a big meeting that was documented to have happened on October 28th um, and that she took advantage of this gathering of prominent men to stop by and, and say, hey, would you please sign this attestation that I actually wrote my own work. This attestation was not the only step that she took in getting her book published in England and in getting people to believe that she had really written what was in the book. She also wrote to William Legg, the Earl of Dartmouth, in October of 1772, sending him a copy of a poem she had written about him. The Earl had just been named Secretary of State for the Colonies, and she both celebrated his appointment in the poem and included another attestation of her authenticity, this one signed by Nathaniel Wheatley. Phyllis also made a third connection to Selina Hastings, the Countess of Huntingdon, the one whose personal chaplain had been the Reverend George Whitefield. The Countess, Lord Dartmouth, and Susanna Wheatley were all connected through the Countess of Huntingdon's Connection, which was a network of evangelical churches and chapels. Phyllis dedicated her manuscript to the Countess, who advocated for its publication in England through publisher Archibald Bell. Accompanied by Nathaniel Wheatley, Phyllis went to London in 1773 to oversee the publication of her book. Sometimes this trip is also described as being for the sake of her health, She was definitely there to work on the book. By this point, she'd established such a name for herself that she had a huge list of notable people to visit. Probably the name that people would be most likely to uh, recognize today is Benjamin Franklin, who was at the time in London. If you've listened to the Dido Elizabeth Bell segment of our episode Three Astonishing Bells, you'll recall that we talked about the Somerset case. And this was a court case decided in 1772 in which Lord Mansfield ruled that an enslaved person brought to England could not be sold back into slavery. In some places, this was interpreted as freeing all slaves in England, which it didn't really do. But it did mean that when Phyllis Wheatley arrived in London the following year, Under English law, she could not be forced back into slavery. It's possible that this is one of the reasons that she decided to publish her book in England rather than in the colonies. Yeah, people in Boston definitely knew about the Somerset case by the time she made that decision. Phyllis Wheatley's first and only published book, which was Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was published on September 1st, 1773. This was the first published volume of poetry by an African woman in the English-speaking world. It included that attestation of her authenticity that we read earlier, along with a letter from John Wheatley, briefly detailing where she came from and how she had been educated and concluding, quote, 
Relation is given by her master who bought her and with whom she now lives. The book's frontispiece featured a portrait of her, ringed in the words, Phyllis Wheatley, Negro servant to Mr. John Wheatley of Boston. That portrait is likely the work of enslaved African painter Scipio Moorhead, who was also the subject of Wheatley's poem to S.M., a young African painter, on seeing his works. If you're wondering about that wording of Negro servant, a lot of people who were enslaved were referred to as servants, especially in England and New England. A few weeks after Phyllis arrived in England, Susanna Wheatley became seriously ill, and Phyllis returned to Massachusetts to attend to her. Her ship arrived on September 16, 1773. Four days later, the Boston Gazette noted her arrival among notable passengers aboard her ship, calling her an extraordinary poetical genius. At some point not long after that, Phyllis was manumitted by the Wheatleys. In a letter to David Worcester dated October 18, 1773, she wrote, quote, Since my return to America, my master has, at the desire of my friends in England, given me my freedom. Her book had received at least nine reviews in British papers, and many of those reviews had really condemned the Wheatleys' continued enslavement of her. So even though she could really not have been forced to return to slavery under the Somerset ruling after having been in England, the Wheatleys made that official. Phyllis also took the precautionary step of sending a copy of her manumission papers to a contact she had in London for safekeeping. We're going to talk about what we know of Phyllis Wheatley's life as a free woman, including a famous exchange with George Washington, but we're going to first take a little sponsor break. By the time Phyllis Wheatley returned from England, the colonies were definitely headed toward war with Britain. That was, of course, the Revolutionary War. George Washington was named Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army on June 19, 1775. And on October 26th of that year, Phyllis Wheatley sent him a poem she had written in his honor, along with a letter. The letter read, quote, I have taken the freedom to address your excellency in the enclosed poem and entreat your acceptance, though I am not insensible of its inaccuracies. Your being appointed by the Grand Continental Congress to be generalissimo of the armies of North America, together with the fame of your virtues, excites sensations not easy to suppress. Your generosity, therefore, I presume, will pardon the attempt. Wishing your excellency all possible success in the great cause you are so generously engaged in. This poem ends with the widely quoted lines, Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side. Thy every action let the goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine with gold unfading. Washington be thine. That Washington is in all caps. (laughs) Washington's reply, dated February 10th of the following year, began with an apology for taking so long to answer. It then went on to say, quote, The style and manner exhibit a striking proof of your great poetical talents, in honor of which, and as a tribute justly due to you, I would have published the poem had I not been apprehensive that, while I only meant to give the world this new instance of your genius, I might have incurred the imputation of vanity. This, and nothing else, determined me not to give it place in the public prints. 
If you should ever come to Cambridge or near headquarters, I shall be happy to see a person so favored by the muses and to whom nature has been so liberal and beneficent in her dispensations. I am with great respect, et cetera, et cetera. There. <laughs> uh, historians are divided about whether she actually met George Washington in Cambridge, but it cracks me up that this letter is basically like, I would have published this incredibly flattering poem you wrote about me, but then people might think I'm vain. <laughs> Perhaps to get around that accusation of vanity, George Washington also sent the poem to Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Reed, enclosing it in a letter that talked about all kinds of other various unrelated matters before concluding, quote, I recollect nothing else worth giving you the trouble of, unless you can be amused by reading a letter and poem addressed to me by Mrs. or Miss Phyllis Wheatley, and searching over a parcel of papers the other day in order to destroy such as were useless, I brought it to light again. At first, with a view of doing justice to her great poetical genius, I had a great mind to publish the poem, but not knowing whether it might be considered rather as a mark of my own vanity than as a compliment to her, I laid it aside till I came across it again in the manner just mentioned. Lieutenant Colonel Reed apparently took the hint. Uh, the poem was published in Pennsylvania Magazine in April of 1776, and other publications picked it up from there. With the onset of the Revolutionary War, things got a lot more difficult for Phyllis Wheatley. Susanna Wheatley had died on March 3rd, 1774. And then Nathaniel Wheatley had actually died a year before his mother. Mary and John Wheatley both died in 1778. So... The Wheatleys had kept Phyllis in bondage, but they'd also essentially been filling the role of her patrons. Without their support, she had trouble selling poems and making ends meet, especially since the war meant that readers' attention was really focused on other matters. On April 1st, 1778, Phyllis Wheatley and a free Black man named John Peters announced their engagement. They married on Thanksgiving Day of that year, which was November 26th. Most biographers have not been very kind to John Peters. They kind of paint him as a shiftless man who could not get his act together. But in reality, things were extremely difficult for free Black people in New England during the Revolutionary War. Jobs were hard to find. The pay was often so low that it wasn't enough to live on. So John Peters tried his hand at running a grocery and a bakery and a saloon, but he just was not able to get a stable financial footing under him. He also referred to himself as a doctor and at one point practiced law, and some biographers have made a great big deal of the fact that he didn't have a license to do either of those, even though there was not a licensing body that he could have applied to at the time. Yeah, that was pretty common practice <laughs> in this, in this uh, for people to hang out their shingle and say they were a professional in a, a field where today we would have a lot more... Um, paperwork and uh, applications and approvals before you could use those words. For sure. That is not exclusive to John Peters at all. Uh, we really don't know much at all about the last few years of Phyllis Wheatley's life, except that they seem to have been lived in poverty. John Peters wound up in and out of jail for debt, and Phyllis may have had as many as three children, although there were no records kept of their births or deaths. She died, most likely due to complications from childbirth, on December 5th, 1784, at the age of 31, with most sources agreeing that her newborn died on that same day. 
Before she died, Phyllis Wheatley had written a second book, which she had tried to publish in 1779, but she couldn't find sufficient subscribers to do it. Again, this was during the Revolutionary War. It was difficult. That manuscript, unfortunately, has been lost. John Peters does seem to have gotten his financial worries straightened out after the war was over and led an upstanding life from that point. He is the last person known to have had access to that manuscript. He may have taken it with him when he eventually left Boston, but exactly where he went or what happened to the manuscript is just not clear. 57 of Phyllis's poems survive today. 46 of them were published during her lifetime. In 1986, what was believed to be her last poem was unearthed. That was titled An Elegy on Leaving, and it was published in Arminian Magazine, which would later become Methodist Magazine in July 1784. This magazine was edited by John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, and it seems as though whoever sent the poem to him incorrectly attributed it. According to research by Caroline Wigington, it was really the work of Mary Watley, first published in her collection Original Poems on Several Occasions 20 years earlier. This is probably an honest mistake somebody made. As we've talked about before, spellings were not very standardized at this period, so it was it would have been easy for Wheatley and Watley or Watley Uh, to have been spelled in nearly the same or exactly the same way. During and after Phyllis Wheatley's lifetime, her work was used by abolitionists as evidence that Africans were humans with souls and intelligence equal to that of Europeans. But not everyone had seen her work as evidence of the intrinsic humanity and equality of Africans. Thomas Jefferson criticized her work heavily in Notes on the State of Virginia in 1787. He wrote, quote, "'Misery is often the parent of the most affecting touches in poetry. Among the Blacks is misery enough, God knows, but no poetry. Love is the particular Eastrum of the poet. Their love is ardent, but it kindles the senses only, not the imagination.' Religion, indeed, has has produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions composed under her name are below the dignity of criticism. I want to time travel and maybe, um, uh, yeah. I want to say bad things to Thomas Jefferson. That's what's up. (laughs) Uh, Aside from Jefferson's disparagement, Wheatley's work started to fall out of favor in the 19th century, as it was overshadowed by slave narratives and the work of people like Frederick Douglass. This was especially true since Wheatley's enslavement had taken place in such relative comfort. Uh, we don't want to downplay the fact that she was still an enslaved person, but it, it there were certainly stories that were a lot darker out there circulating. Uh, so hers stood in sharp contrast to the writing that was tied at the time to the antebellum South. By the turn of the 20th century, writers and critics were pointing out a range of perceived shortcomings in Phyllis Wheatley's work, including that she wasn't personal enough, she wasn't genuine enough, and she cared too little for other enslaved Africans. 
In the words of James Weldon Johnson, who was writing in the 1922 preface to the Book of American Negro Poetry, quote, one looks in vain for some outburst or even complaint against the bondage of her people, for some agonizing cry about her native land. In two poems, she refers definitely to Africa as her home, but in each instance, there seems to be, under the sentiment of the lines, a feeling of almost smug contentment at her own escape therefrom. In the early to mid-20th century, people started to write Phyllis Wheatley off as a second-rate imitator of Alexander Pope. This sort of criticism really escalated in the 1960s, especially within the Black arts movement, which saw Wheatley's work as not nearly political or radical enough. Writing in The New Yorker in 2003, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. described it this way, quote, "...too Black to be taken seriously by white critics in the 18th century," Wheatley was now considered too white to interest Black critics in the 20th. A lot of this criticism cites Wheatley's poem On Being Brought from Africa to America. And the first stanza of this poem reads, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God and there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew." So in other words, she's describing being brought from Africa to America as a slave as something merciful because otherwise she wouldn't have learned about the existence of God and sought redemption. But the poem's second stanza goes on to condemn racism and hypocrisy among Christian slave owners, admonishing them to remember that, to use her word, Negroes are also human souls who are able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here is the second half of that poem. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. It's also worth noting that this poem, which has been used to just write Phyllis Wheatley off completely, was written when she was about 14 years old. And if she had lived longer, it would have been thought of as part of her juvenilia and not as part of her mature body of work. And criticisms that she never condemned slavery are simply not accurate. Here's a stanza from To the Right Honorable William Earl of Dartmouth, which we referenced earlier. Quote, Should you, my lord, while you peruse my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the common good, by feeling hearts alone best understood. I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Africa's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Steeled was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case, and can I then but pray, others may never feel tyrannic sway. In that same book introduction, James Weldon Johnson dismissed that poem as unimpassioned. In the last few decades, critics and scholars have started to take a closer look at Wheatley's actual writing, which had previously been overshadowed by her biography and her general noteworthiness as an enslaved Black poet during the colonial era. Some of this traces possible African influences in her work. Several literary critics, including John C. Shields and Mary Catherine Loving, also interpreted her work as a lot more subversive than previous criticism had given it credit for. 
So it's hard to draw comparisons to specific African cultures because Africa is not a monolith and we don't know exactly where Phyllis Wheatley was from or what who her people in Africa would have been. But several historians have noted that multiple West African peoples use funeral elegies as a central element of community life, with these songs most often being performed by young women. Nearly a third of Wheatley's surviving poems are elegies, and structurally, they have more in common with African elegies than with elegiac poems from when she was living written in Europe. Another potential African influence on Wheatley's work is in its imagery. Margareta Matilda O'Dell wrote the first biography, which was published with an edition of her poems in 1834. And in the introduction to that biography, O'Dell claimed, quote, she does not seem to have preserved any remembrance of the place of her nativity or of her parents, excepting the simple circumstance that her mother poured out water before the sun at his rising, in reference, no doubt, to an ancient African custom. The rising sun is frequently a repeated theme in Wheatley's poetry, as well as plays on the words involving sun as in the male child and sun as in the uh, bright blazing object in the sky. And then there's the fact that Wheatley was, based on everything we know of her, obviously very smart. Her making connections in London and traveling there after the Somerset case was decided suggests that she was also politically very savvy. She also removed a lot of explicitly pro-patriot poems from that collection of poetry before having it printed in London, and she replaced them with ones that would be more acceptable to a more loyalist audience. So it's really reasonable to conclude that she understood how she was being constrained by the world that she was living in, and she was crafting poems to be well-received within that world. So instead of writing poems explicitly about the evils of slavery, she wrote poems about loving liberty and freedom, which within her overwhelmingly white audience in the colonies would be read as patriotism instead of as criticism. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Saturday Classic. If you have heard any kind of email address or maybe a Facebook URL during the course of the episode, that might be obsolete. It might be doubly obsolete because we have changed our email address again. You can now reach us at historypodcast at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 